Amen. Amen. Go and have a seat. Wow, that was fun. Uh, good morning and uh, welcome. Get your Bibles out. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. And we're blazing through uh, the book of Nehemiah and our sermon series, Out of the Wreckage, uh, a study in the book of Nehemiah. And the title of the message this morning as you're turning to Nehemiah chapter 4 is uh, Responding to Opposition. Responding to Opposition. And if we're going to come out of the wreckage, if we're going to, if we're going to rebuild, if we're going to move forward, got to understand from the very outset that there's going to be opposition. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be hardship. In fact, last week we talked about, uh, we talked about the reality that uh, when it comes to opposition, the question isn't, is there going to be opposition? The question is, when will there be opposition? Okay, it's not a question of if, but a question of when. As I was thinking through this truth this week, I just began to think through the scriptures and I began to ask myself, was, was anyone, was there any person in the scriptures that wanted to live righteously, that wanted to do the things that God called them to, that didn't find themselves in a place of opposition? I mean, just start thinking about that. Right, Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, all these guys, Peter, Paul, right? We go on and on and on. Because I, I can't think of one. I can't think of one person in the scriptures that wanted to do things that God called them to that didn't find themselves facing opposition. In fact, one of the things, maybe what I was most struck by as I started thinking through the scriptures is even Adam and Eve, okay, get this loved ones, even before sin entered into the world, they faced opposition. Now, okay, it wasn't very long after that that sin entered into the world. But even they faced opposition. And so the issue for us this morning isn't not whether it's going to come, but when it comes, how do we respond to it? How do we handle it? How do I righteously engage what, what is inevitably coming my way as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I think that's what Nehemiah begins to speak to here in chapter 4. And so let's read verses 1 through 14. And, uh, and then we'll just begin. We'll, we'll come back through it a second time and let God uh, speak to us the very things that he has for us. But Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in or, uh, verse 1. Uh, now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. He said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, right? So all his little cohorts. Okay, it's easy to be bold and brash when it's everyone that's on your team. Here's what he's saying. Five questions. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Verse 3, Tobiah, his little sidekick, apparently he thought it was fun, so he wanted to get in on the action as well. Here's what he said. Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Verse 4, here's Nehemiah's response to their taunts. Hear, O our God. Right, he's praying, all right? He's praying. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. Well, it's kind of harsh. Why would he say that? Well, here it is, into verse 5. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And the, all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, okay, here's a shocker, they were very angry, just told us that. And they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Verse 10 in Judah, it was said, now in the, the ESV, if you're using an ESV, it doesn't show uh, this here. But this is really a lament, okay? This is what apparently a number of uh, Jewish people were lamenting uh, in that day. Here's what they're saying. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. 
Okay, and as if the lament isn't bad enough, check out verse 11. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And because of the lament and because of this threat, we see verse 12. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Some pretty significant fear in the land in this moment. Verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Why? Why? Well, here's why. Because we remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Would you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we come before you right now, and God, we ask, uh, God, we ask that your spirit would have the freedom to move and work, uh, that God, in all things, that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds to hear and receive what it is that you would have for us. Uh, God, I pray, uh, God, I pray that your spirit uh, would come and join us, uh, that God, that you would uh, speak to us in whatever way we need to be spoken to. God, for some of us, we need to hear the, the firm, uh, 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 direct uh, rebuke or exhortation. For other, others of us, we need to hear your gentle, kind, compassionate uh, encouragement, your soft words spoken to us in a difficult moment. But God, for all of us, wherever we would find ourselves, we ask that you would come and you would speak to us. But God, not only for us, but I pray for for Pastor Scott Butler in Canyon Bible Church. I pray for Pastor Scott that you would uh, be moving and working in his people and moving and working in, uh, in Canyon Bible as well. And that God, not just in Faith Church, but in all of uh, the, the Christ-honoring churches of the metro area, where your spirit would be free to move and work and do as you please. So God, now, God, now, as we, as we look through Nehemiah 4, as we, as we look at what it is to, to respond to opposition, what it is to respond to difficulty and hardship, uh, that we would see, that we would see Nehemiah's response and that we would respond in a, in a righteous fashion uh, for your name's sake, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Responding to opposition. Uh, four things we'll see this morning, really, as the, as the passage moves along, we toggle back and forth between uh, seeing the opposition itself and then seeing Nehemiah's response to the opposition. And so notice uh, in, in first, uh, the first three verses, we see uh, the opposition show up, and we see opposition show up in the form of ridicule. And so let's not be ignorant or uninformed about some of the things that showed up here and undoubtedly are going to be some of the things that are going to show up in your life and in my life uh, if we're going to live righteously uh, for Jesus Christ. But notice this, first of all, uh, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. Okay, so we start talking about elements of ridicule, uh, some of the different ways it's going to show up. Well, the first is anger. He's angry. He's greatly enraged. Uh, that, that word there, th those words are very similar, and it, it carries the idea of being hot about something. Have you ever been so fired up you can actually feel your body temperature rising? Ever, okay, who's ever been there? Raise your hand if you've ever been there. Okay? So, some of you got to check your pulse, okay? Or, you've, or, or you're, you've, you've never had any conflict in your life, or you're a pushover. It's like one of those three things. Right, we're just so hot, you're so enraged, you're fired up about things. And that's where Sanballat is. So fired up, but for all the wrong reasons. See, part of opposition, it's always going to lead people to, to anger, that there's going to be hostility towards us. And so listen, listen, listen. If you want to do things that are going to be honoring to the Lord, sometimes people are going to be angry with you. Sometimes people are going to get mad at you. Don't be surprised when that comes. Okay, expect that. If there's anger, you see the anger beginning to play out in some of the different ways and, uh, that Sinbalad and the others begin to speak to and engage the, uh, the Jews. Notice at the end of verse 1, he jeered at the Jews. We've seen that word a few times before. It literally means to mock or mocking. Okay, it's a taunt, an insult, a slight He's saying negative things about them. He's making fun of them. Right? Like, how hard is it in our society today to make fun of Christians? It's not very hard. 
Okay, a part of that is the nature of our society. Part of that is we give them uh, some uh, some pretty good ammunition at times. Okay, but the the the, the mocking, the jeering, let's not be surprised by that. And notice this in verse two. <clears throat> he said, "In the presence of his brothers and in the army of Samaria," and he poses these five questions. Right, he he. He pretty much reveals his cards up front. What are these feeble Jews doing? I really have to wonder what he's getting at, what he's after, what he really thinks. He's let us know. Then he goes on with four other questions. Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones? As he's questioning, he's questioning them. He wants to bring them to a place where there's uncertainty or doubt. Now, there's a significant uh, distinction between questioning uh, for for the sake of of honesty or accountability uh, versus calling into question the the nature and the character and the ability of of the people. And these questions, all of these questions were meant uh, to, to lead everyone involved to one unmistakable conclusion, that the Jews were worthless, that they were inadequate, that they were incapable of doing what God had called them to do. See, this is, this is old school propaganda right here. This is a propaganda campaign and an attempt to create or fabricate an identity of the people that's not real. All right? And so we anger, mocking, questioning, and then finally this. Look at verse 3. The insulting. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe there's something lost in, <clears throat> in the translation here, but... But I, I think probably the most insulting thing about what Tobiah said is how lame of an insult this is. Okay, I mean, this sounds like something a five-year-old would say. If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. That's all you got? I mean, at, le- at least Symbalit was cutting and harsh and, and driving at this. So this guy, it's just kind of some lame, cheap, cheesy insult. That sounds like something that would come out of a child's mouth. Right? But there's, there's insults here. So opposition in the form of ridicule, right? Anger, mocking, questioning, insulting. Now, that's not all, but that's what we see here in the text. Let me just ask you, you ever been at the receiving end of these items? You ever been the one who these things have been directed at? See, probably most, if not all of us, could go, Yeah. Maybe even multiple times think of, of, of different times or situations in our life where we've been the ones who've been on the receiving end of this. But see, the question isn't if, the question is when, and, and the issue this morning isn't, is it going to happen, but what are we going to do when it happens? See, what's our response to this? And far too often, far too often our response when, when, when these things are leveled at us, right, we want to fire back. I want to set the record straight. I want to get all the facts on the table. Okay, well, what was Nehemiah's response? How did he respond? How did he handle the ridicule? Well, let's look at verses 4 through 6 and let God's Word just begin to speak into our life and teach us a righteous response to ridicule. All these things that were said, the anger, the jeering, the questioning, the insulting, and notice verse 4. Hear, O our God. You probably want to underline that. See, what, I, what, what, what Nehemiah doesn't tell us, but he tells us, is that his response is to pray. It's the first thing he does is he prays. Right? Hear, O our God. See, the righteous response to ridicule, the righteous response to opposition is to pray. We pray. That's the first response. That's the first thing that he did. Now, now hasn't that been his response to everything thus far in the book. Like the first thing that he does is he, he goes right back to God. God, what would you say? What would you do? What would you call us to in this? You don't think he's not trying to drive something home here? It's like, are we getting this? Are we understanding this? And the first response is we pray. Now notice a few things about Nehemiah's prayer. First of all, hear, O God, for we are despised. For we are despised. Right? Part, part of the prayer is an honest expression. There's an honest expression. He's like, listen, God, we're, we're, we're embarrassed. We're, we're the object of scorn. We're, we're the butt of all the jokes. God, why, why aren't you doing something about this? You know, we talked about honest expression a few weeks ago. We've got to be honest. We've got to be honest with God. 
right? And, and, and we're not fooling him. It's not like I can fake it before God and he's like, oh, you didn't really mean that? I didn't see right through that. How did that happen, right? I mean, he's, he's not fooled by that. Let's be honest. Notice the second of all. Here, O oh, oh, our God, for we're despised. And then, and I don't know about you, but the, the prayer took a different turn than I would have expected it to take uh, here in verse 4 and 5. Uh, Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Some of you are like, man, there's some people I want to pray that for. I didn't realize I could. Right? For some of you, your whole prayer life just changed. Like, this is phenomenal. Right? But he, look, he didn't even stop there. See, it's one thing what he says in verse 4. He's, he's pretty much like, hey, give them what they're giving us. But verse 5, he moves beyond that. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. Did I miss something? I mean, is that not harsh? Is that not intense? Like, did we suddenly leave the scriptures and we're reading his diary or something? Like, what's going on here? Well, here's what's going on. See, he's appealing to God's justice. See, in his, in his prayer, what he's saying is, God, I want you to be just. I'm appealing to your justice in this, for you to do what you said you would do. He's talking about God's justice. Now, you, it would be easy to read verse 4 and verse 5 and go, uh, that doesn't look like justice. That looks like some kind of personal vendetta, some kind of vindictiveness or vengeance that he just wants to see executed upon these people. And if that were the case, if that were true, then undoubtedly that's wrong. Okay, and, and, and Nehemiah should be confronted by that. But, but look at what he goes on to say in verse 5. Here's why I think he's appealing to God's justice. He says, all these things, for they have provoked you to anger. They've provoked you to anger. See, it, it could be that he just has a personal vengeance. But do not mistake a personal vengeance with people coming to a place where they have a moral abhorrence with something. That they, they just despise what is happening morally and they get so fed up with it that they're like, God, you have to act. You have to move. Okay, we, we live in a day and age. It, it's not hard. Okay, it's not hard in our country, in the metro area, to start thinking about some things that we can come to that place where we begin to appeal to God's justice. Right, someone told me this week that, I, I, I've never heard this before, someone told me this week that Albuquerque is the abortion capital of the country or the world. Yeah, there's a distinction I would love to be as far away from possible, not as close to as possible. Right, beginning to appeal to God's justice in these things. Now listen, listen, listen. In appealing to God's justice... Avoid the temptation. Avoid the temptation to attempt to take it into your own hands. See, when, you're, when, you, when you pray for God's justice, part of what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to take them off my hook and I'm going to put them on God's hook. And you release them and you allow God to handle them. Now, now <clears throat> the temptation for us is we want to think that vengeance is mine. There's a problem. Uh, someone already claimed that vengeance belongs to them, and his name is Yahweh. Okay, the God of the universe tells us in Deuteronomy 32, and then it's quoted repeatedly in other places. He says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Okay, why? Why would you say that, God? Well, here's why. For the Lord will vindicate his people. Right? It's not about us taking it into our hands. It's about allowing God to do what He wants to do, seeking His justice. And that's why such, such harsh, hard words coming out of Nehemiah. He's like, God, I, I'm, I'm appealing to your justice here. I want to see you be just in this. And I'm tired of them taunting you. I'm tired of them ridiculing you. I'm tired of them saying things about you that are not true. And that's what leads him to say these words. And maybe for some of you, maybe for some of you, these are some of the words that you need to start praying in your life about some situations and some things in your life. Right? It's, it's, it's in the Scriptures for a reason. And I believe that he's appealing to God's justice here. And notice this thirdly about his prayer. Into the prayer, we've talked a little bit about this. But he's seeking God's honor. See, I'm so struck by the fact, no, nowhere in his prayer does he say, God, they hurt my feelings. God, I'm bothered about this. That This is painful. Why are you making me suffer this? He's like, no, no. They provoked you to anger. 
See, it's all about God's honor. See, I believe that's his motivation. That's the thing that he's after. He's like, God, I'm sick and tired. I am sick and tired of them dishonoring you, of them being irreverent about you. It's all about God's honor. He's like, no longer, no longer will you be attacked. No longer will they say these things to you. And he's saying, listen, listen, God, no one says this about you and goes freely. Needs to be exposed and needs to be brought into the light. Very similar to what God told the nation of Israel back in Numbers 32. Remember when the eastern tribes were saying, hey, we're, we're already where we're going to settle our land. Can we just stay here and settle it? And, and then when the time for war and, and going into Canaan comes, we'll come with you. And what God spoke through Moses, he said this. He said, yeah, you can do that. But listen, if you will not do so, if you're basically, if you're going to go back on your word, Behold, you've sinned against the Lord. And then here's this. As a parent, this is probably the greatest prayer you could ever pray for your child. As a child, I hated this, probably because it was so effective in my life. You've sinned against the Lord, and be sure that your sin will find you out. And what Nehemiah is saying is, God, Sinbalat, and Tobiah, and these, these, these groups, their sin has found them out. And I'm appealing to your justice to deal with this. And a righteous response to ridicule as we pray. We pray. Now, Emily, Emily announced uh, this morning about different prayer times. Um, but but I, let me just say this. If we as a church don't figure out how to become individuals and a, a corporate body who learns how to pray, God ain't going to do what he wants to do here. That's, that's probably the softest, most gentle way I can say that. If we don't learn to become a church that prays, a church that petitions God, and people that are fervent about coming before Him, it ain't going to happen. It just ain't going to happen. All right? And so the first response is we pray, and we got plenty of room, uh, both individually and corporately, where we can grow in that. Right? We respond by praying. Notice then this secondly, look at verse 6. Uh, if you don't have verse 6 underlined or highlighted, you should probably fix that like right now. All right. Verse 6. So we built the wall. I mean, I, I, how amazing is that? Right? You've got this whole drama unfolding in verses 1 through 5, verse 6. Yeah, we built the wall. We, we, we built the wall. Right? See, see, part of the response to ridicule is we continue to do God's work. Right? God said, go do this. And people showed up and they started mocking and jeering and questioning and insulting them. And they're like, well, that's kind of a bummer, but God told us to do this, so we're just going to keep doing it. And they continued to do what God called them to do. They didn't stop. They didn't relent. They didn't hold back. And see, for so many of us, often the temptation is to succumb. It's to succumb to, to the taunts or to the jeering. It's to stop. It's to hesitate. It's, it's to let fear uh, come in and begin to rule uh, and reign over us and not what God had called us to do. But listen, if God called you to do something, that's right. Do it. You go do it. You don't stop. You don't go, well, what should I do now? You do it. So we built the wall. Right? They, they, had, <laughs> they had every reason to stop. And they're like, well, God told us to do it. We're going to go do it. God help us, that'd be true of us as well. God told us to do it, so we're going to go do it. That's what we're going to do. We continue to do God's work and do not, do not, do not allow the ridicules and the opposition and the jeering and the mocking of others to prevent you from the call and commands of what God has called you to. We continue to do His work. Are you doing the work? Right? Are you doing the work? And then notice this. <clears throat> he tells us, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. That's most likely a, a reference to what the length or the height of the wall at that particular point uh, when he's writing this. But then notice what he says right after this. For the people had a... Tell me, what's that word right there? The people had a... Okay, that was pathetic. Let's try that again. Okay, for the people had a... Mind to work. They had a mind to work. The, the word there is literally a heart. What, what, what it means is the inner will, that there was an inner will, an inner drive, an inner desire. And what drove them, what motivated them, what pushed them was a mind to work. See, they're motivated by a right heart. 
They were ready to work. They were ready to expend themselves for the call that God had on their lives. Now, as I started thinking about having a mind to work, having an inner will uh, to work this week, I I just started thinking about what what are things that for most of us we, we tend to have an inner will for, a heart for, a passion for, an unceasing desire to pursue and be after. And one of the things that I was struck by, most of the things that show up in the church and most of the things that show up in our society, they're not bad things. In fact, some of them are really good things. But just ask yourself, uh, do, do you have a will, a mind, a heart to work, or is this what you have a mind for? Is this what you have a heart for? Because while these items are not inherently evil, they become that when we're controlled or consumed by them. Here's four. Comfort. Comfort. I think one of the greatest idols in our country today is the idol of comfort. We will go to great lengths to pursue this, pursue this in our finances, to pursue this in our health, to pursue this in our life. I mean, we, we, we avoid struggle and we avoid pain at all costs. We love comfort. Now, again, comfort's not a bad thing. It's not a wrong thing. But it becomes that when it's what we're consumed with, when that's what we're controlled with. And if you don't believe me, if you don't believe me, just take the next few weeks and listen Listen to what people complain about and what people want prayer about. I want the pain to stop. I want the struggle to be over. I want it to get easier. And ironically enough, so often the very thing that you and I are trying to avoid or run away from is the very thing that God wants to push and press into our life to move us to a place where we are hungry for Him and dependent upon Him. And we're running from it. See, the truth is, the truth is, I would much rather in my life, and and I'll say this for you as well, maybe you might not like that I'm going to say this for you, but I don't care, it's one of the things I pray for you, is I would much rather that God allow you and I to suffer, to experience pain, and even for Him to crush us so that He moves us close to Him than for God to give us everything that we could possibly want and us be far from Him. All right? All right, and comfort, comfort, uh, for so many is, is an idol. And, and the point is not about comfort, it's about closeness. God's love is not a pampering love, it's a perfecting love. It's not about our happiness, it's about our holiness, right? All these different ways of saying it suffice to say that for a number of us, we have a mind or we have a heart or we have an inner will for comfort, not for work, not for ministry, not to do what God's called us to. Here's the second one. <clears throat> uh, entertainment. Entertainment. We love to be entertained. Now, Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus said, where your treasure is, uh, there your heart will be also. What he's essentially saying is where you put your money, uh, your heart will follow. Now, let's just look at our society wholesale. Where do we put so much of our money? It's an entertainment. It's why athletes and musicians and actors and people who entertain get paid really, really well. And people who suffer through uh, teaching uh, elementary uh, school for 20, 30 years get peanuts, okay? There's a huge discrepancy there. It's what we value. It's what we long for. It's what we're after. It's what we have a mind for. And so, so if you follow the money, it tells us that we value entertainment and so you can take that same principle and apply it to time. Time probably being the single greatest commodity we have in our society today. And what, what, what do we love to tell people? I'm too, tell me, busy. busy, right? We're too busy. Except somehow I always have time for three hours of Netflix, seven nights a week. How does that work? Because I have a mind for entertainment. I don't have a mind for work. That's how that works. All right. So just ask yourself, maybe that's not you, okay? But just ask yourself, do I have a mind for comfort? Do I have a mind for entertainment? Okay, here's the third one. Safety. Safety. And all the young moms are like, what? No, you can't knock safety. Don't you dare go there. But safety. I'm going to go there. Because here's, here's what happens. Here's what happens. We become so consumed with being safe 
that what we really say and what it really belies is a distrust of God's protection and provision in our life. And so we do everything to be safe. Now, let me, let me be clear. I'm not telling you to be foolish or reckless. I'm not telling you to not be prudent. Okay, so don't roll out of here and go, I'm going to go skydiving without a parachute, okay? Or I'm not, I'm not telling you to put your two-year-old in the front seat of the car unbuckled. I'm not saying be foolish. What I'm saying is just begin to ask yourself, do I have a mind for safety? Am I consumed with that? Does it belie a distrust in my heart of God's protection and provision for me? Because one of the things that I tell Becky and one of the things that I've told my, my, my kids, in fact, we say it often in our house, your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. <laughs> okay, that came out kind of funny. <laughs> Might be a good idea next time we need to punish one of our children, right? Okay, your days are numbered, right? We, 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 we got a ticker. And, and see, here, here's the thing. When it's my day, when it's my day, no, precra- no precaution, no safety measure, nothing is going to prevent Jesus from taking me home. All right? Now, now, hold on, hold on, because here's the other side of this. Here's the other side of this. Until it's my day, I'm invincible. Okay? Until it's my day, until it's my day, I'm invincible, and so are you. All right. And so, so we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in anxiety. Your day's coming and my day's coming. And when it comes, there's nothing we can do uh, to, to prevent God from taking us home. But until then, until then, we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to be consumed with being safe. Now, let's not be reckless or foolish either. But do we have a mind for safety or do we have a mind for work? And so often, so one of, the, one of my favorite things... <clears throat> And one of the most significant things in my life is my parents, when I was 19 years old, let me go by myself into a Western, uh, West African country that was in the middle of a civil war. All right. I, I don't know that I could let my kids do that, but I can't tell you, I can't tell you all the ways that God moved and worked in my life. I would be a very different person had my parents not let me do that. But see, they had a mind for ministry and they had a mind for work and not a mind for safety. And they trusted God's protection and provision for me. And whether I was going to die in West Africa, whether I was going to die in Flagstaff, wherever I found myself. God's like, your days are numbered. And my parents were like, we understand your days are numbered. Do you have a mind for safety? Or do you have a mind for work? And then finally this. This is, this is something that shows up often in the church. Got a mind for knowledge. Got a mind for knowledge. And you're like, how, how is knowledge a bad thing? Well, it's a bad thing when you know everything about God, but you don't know him personally. You don't know him relationally. You're not walking closely with him. See, it's no different than the fanatic who can tell you about their favorite sports figure or actor or musician and tell you their birth date and their favorite hobby and their favorite gum flavor and all that stuff. And, and sometimes people start going on. It's like, have you ever, ever even met that person? Have you ever talked to them? Well, no. Then who cares? Like, who cares? There's no relationship there. And for how many believers do we do the same thing? I can tell you about all these weird fringe theological issues, and I've got my one little thing here, and I can go on and on and on for it. But the moment you start talking about walking closely with Jesus, and they put you at arm's length. See, beware of that person. Beware of becoming that person, and beware of that person. Knowledge. Do you have a mind for knowledge? Or do you have a mind for work and ministry? And a righteous response to ridicule, right? We pray, we continue to do God's work, and then we're motivated by a right heart. Now notice, as the, as the passage continues, we see some more opposition show up. <clears throat> verse 7, we get this whole list of all these different people. At uh, the end of verse 7, here's really the summary. They were very angry. Okay, shocker. Not sure that we're really surprised by that at any point in time. They've been angry throughout the entire book of Nehemiah. Verse 8, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And so what we begin to see starting in verse 7 and moving through a significant part of, of this next part of the chapter is opposition in the form of a threat. Right? Opposition in the form of a threat. So notice some of the things here. I already mentioned the anger in verse 7. 
Uh, in verse 8, we see this plotting against her, this scheming, this coming and fighting, and we're going to uh, create confusion. We want to undermine what's happening here. And really, the plot, the plot is in the, the plotting and the scheming is meant to distract, to disappoint, or destroy. Really, anything that will take them off mission, we're good with. If we've got to destroy them, so be it. If we can distract them, so be it. That tends to work in our country. If we can disappoint them, uh, that'll work too. Maybe there's anger, there's plotting against them. Look in verse 10 and following. Right, we see this, this lament, this dirge that they're singing. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. Our enemy said they will not know or see till we come among them. And right, he, This is a pretty significant threat. And kill them and stop the work. This is serious business now. Right, this isn't someone just saying a nasty name or saying, I don't like you. And now your life's on the line. Verse 12, at that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Right, opposition in the form of a threat. Anger plotting against them. And I just wrote this down, that, that they're disheartened. They're disheartened. Right, that, uh, that, that, that uh, Sinbalad and all these other people, that they cause doubt or worry or apathy or reluctance or fear no longer willing to press forward, no longer willing to, to continue. Right? The threat was having its desired effect. It was doing the very thing that they wanted it to do, bringing them to a place of, let's protect ourselves. Let's get off mission and protect ourselves. Now, understand, you have to understand, it doesn't tell us this explicitly here in the text, but th- th- this is a legitimate threat that they're facing. Uh, in verse 7, it describes a, a few different people groups. Uh, the Arabs were to just, just to the south of Judah. The Ammonites were just to the east of Judah. The Ashdodites were just to the west of Judah. And the Samaritans were just north of Judah. So I, I don't know a whole lot about military conflict and how that all works. I know that if you get flanked on one side, that's usually a really bad thing. I have to imagine when you're surrounded, that's a horrible thing. Because that's exactly where they found themselves. Okay, it's a legitimate, real threat that they're facing. I mean, it's as real as it gets. And they've already told them, hey, let's kill them. Let's kill them. Okay, well, how'd they respond? A righteous response to the threats. How do we respond to the opposition? We'll go back to verse 9. Okay, this is going to blow you away. Never seen this except like 15 times already. And we prayed. And we prayed to our God. But notice, notice what he says next. And set a guard as a protection against them day and night. See, the righteous response to threat is we pray and we act. We pray and we act. It, 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 was, it, it was not just, okay, we prayed, now what? It's we prayed and we're going to do something about it. We're going to respond to this. We're, we're going to move See, for far too many of us, too often, it's one or the other. It's, I'm going to act and not pray, or I'm going to pray and not act. And what Nehemiah tells us is you've you got to do both. You have to pray and act. We pray to our God and set up a guard as a protection. It's a both and. It was a both and that played out. And for far too many of us, for far too many of us, we do one or the other, right? For some of us, it's the self-determined, self-sufficient, driven, I got a problem, I'm just going to do it on my own and fix it. And then on the other side, right, well, the first person never engages God. On the other side, you got someone that does the right thing of engaging God, but they don't act. They don't move. They don't respond. Now here's, right, here's one example of a number of examples of how this typically plays out, just to try to drive it home, right? Um, I need a job. Right? Someone needs a job. And typically one of two things happens, right? I'm self-determined, self-driven, self-sufficient. I'm going to make it happen. And, tr- you know, come hell or high water, I'm going to see this thing through. And, you know, usually those people end up in a job, though sometimes I genuinely question if that's where God wanted them. 
or if they learned what God wanted to teach them through that process. So you've got that way of doing it, and then you've got the other way. I need a job. Okay, what are you doing about it? Well, I prayed about it. Okay, great. What else are you doing about it? Well, I prayed about it. Do you have a resume? Why would I have a resume, man? I prayed about it. Uh, have you looked uh, for, for some interviews? Why would I interview? I'm praying about it. Do you even know what's out there? No, I'm praying about it, right? And, and then for the life of us, six months later, we can't understand why we're still unemployed, right? Because what, what God, God's not interested in, God's not interest, inter, interested, man, I can't get the word out, interested in us simply sending him forward. And he's not interested in us simply doing it alone. What God's saying is, I want to go with you on this. Don't run ahead of me. and Don't lag behind me. Come with me. Right? For some of us, for some of us, you're so into the self-sufficient thing. I can power through. I can drive through. I can handle this. I'm independent now. You just got to know one thing. God hates God hates the lie of self-sufficiency. He abhors it. And if you don't believe me, uh, you can pretty much go read any of the prophets and all the things that God had to say about those lame, pathetic sacrifices that the people brought because they wanted to do it in their own power. God hates the lie of self-sufficiency. All right? So some of you, some of you, you need to learn to pray. And, and, and allow God to begin to move and work in the particular situation that you find yourself in. For others of you, for others of you, um, God's not too keen and he's not really fired up about the lazy thing either. Okay, and so I'll just go back. Let's appeal to verse 6. So we built the wall. Right? We prayed and we acted. And then we see it again in verse 9. They prayed and they acted. So part of how we respond to opposition, we pray and we act. So notice then in verse 13 and 14, a couple of the ways that we should act. Look at verse 13. I find this so interesting. <clears throat> all the threats, all the issues, all the drama. Here's Nehemiah's response, verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed people by their clans with their swords, with their spears and their bows. See, part of the righteous response is we protect the vulnerable. We protect the vulnerable. Nehemiah is saying, listen, those who are at greatest risk, that's who we go and protect. That's who we're watching out for. Now, this isn't something new. This isn't the only place that we see this in the scriptures. In fact, we see this throughout the scriptures. The biblical principles drive this uh, all over the place. Uh, Galatians 6, 2 tells us to bear one another's burdens. Uh, Romans 14 tells us to not do anything that would cause another one of our brothers or sisters to stumble. And then just a few verses later, uh, Paul in Romans 15 verse 1 says this. He says, we who are strong, listen, listen, listen. We who are strong have an obligation, not a suggestion, not, not a, hey, if you feel like it, an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We protect the vulnerable. We protect the vulnerable. Now this is usually, right, you start talking about this and you start quoting Romans 14, you quote Romans 15.1, and this is usually where the people that want to talk about their spiritual freedoms get pretty bent, okay, and they get pretty fired up. And who are you to tell me about my spiritual freedoms and what I can and can't do and who I can and can't be with? And are you really telling me, are you really telling me that I have to make decisions in my life with, with regard to what other people think? Well, I don't know. Did Jesus have that attitude? Right? Can you see him before the father? Hey, you're going to earth. Really? For those weaklings, I got to think about them. I got to do something that's going to cost me greatly for them. Okay. Cause that conversation never happened. And yet how often, right, how often we get all bent about our freedoms. We get all bent about what I can or can't do. Okay, well, true or false, right? True or false. Did, did Jesus protect the vulnerable? Tell me, true or false? Okay, that, that, that wasn't a trick question. I gave you three verses, all right? <laughs> true or false, did he protect the vulnerable? True. True or false, is he telling you and I to do this? Oh, my goodness. Come on. This is not a trick question. Okay, it's true. 
It's true. Now, I, here's, here's, here's one other thing that I just I got to throw in because I've had this happen a number of times, and it, it, I think it's humorous, honestly, outside of the rage that usually wells up inside of me. But sometimes, sometimes what people will say is, well, what if I'm the weaker brother? What if I'm the weaker believer, Mike? What if I'm the one who's struggling? And here's my response to that. You're free to use this, all right? If you can quote the verse about the weaker brother, you're not the weaker brother, all right? That's the point. And, and we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, to protect the vulnerable. Notice in this finally, Look at verse 14. <clears throat> it says, And I looked and arose. Now, it doesn't, in the, I love what the NAS, the New American Standard, says. It tells us uh, when Nehemiah it says, When I saw their fear, when I saw their fear, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of them. Why? Why, why, why could he say that? Why would he suggest that? Well, here's why. It's what he says right after that. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. See, the righteous response, really everything that we've been talking about builds to this right here, is that we fix our eyes on the Lord. We get our eyes on Jesus. And you remember Numbers 14 and 10 spies go into the land and, or 12 spies, sorry, and 10 of them are like, ain't gonna happen. Those guys are giants. We're gonna get annihilated. And Caleb and Joshua are like, are you kidding? Quit fearing the people of the land. We serve the, the almighty God of the universe. It's the same thing here. It's the same thing here. Quit fearing those people. Get your eyes back on the God of the universe. And for how many of us, for how many of us are we living in fear? We're living in anxiety. We're living in, in doubt because we're looking at what's right in front of us right here. And where we would simply just turn our gaze upwards. See, because the reality is when I start looking at Jesus, there's not really anything on earth that scares me. What's the worst thing you could do to me? Kill me? That's a score for me. Okay, to live, in, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Killing me is like the greatest thing ever. So what do you got? Right? What could you possibly do? But when we get our eyes off of Jesus, then all of a sudden the fear becomes real and, and tangible and immense and difficult. See, Nehemiah's ultimate appeal is for them to remember their God. It's not to assess the threat or put together a four-step plan or how are we going to handle this? He's like, man, would you just look upward? Would you get your eyes on the creator of the universe? Would you get them fixed on him? You won't care what these guys are saying. You won't be worried about what they're saying. Don't fear the people of the land. Specifically, he says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Right, rem reminding them of God's greatness, reminding them of His awesomeness. Let me just try uh, to tie this all together. I want to just two other verses, two other passages here uh, to tie this idea of getting our eyes fixed on the Lord. If you want to, you can flip to uh, Philippians chapter 4, though most of you probably have these verses memorized. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Do not uh, be anxious for anything. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Right, how many times have we prayed that? How many times have we quoted that, said that? See, the problem is, so often we miss the power that drives that verse. Because the power is found in what it says at the end of verse 5. The reason that we cannot be anxious, the reason that we can have peace, the reason that we can trust in these things is... That's so what Paul says right here. He says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. See, it's not go try hard to not be anxious. He's saying, listen, because God is close, there's no need to be anxious. There's no need to be fearful. There's no need to be worried. God's close. What could you possibly be worried about? See, when our eyes are fixated on God, when we're gazing into Him, there's no fear. There's no anxiety. There's nothing but peace. Right, probably the best illustration of this is found in Matthew 14. Right, remember Matthew 14? Jesus just fed the 5,000. Said, hey, why don't you guys go ahead and go across the lake? I'll catch up to you. Out in the middle of the lake, 
And uh, things weren't going so well for the disciples, were they? A rough storm, uh, rowing, 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 but pretty much staying stationary. And then as if that wasn't bad enough, here comes some ghost or whatever it is walking out on the water. So they're freaking out pretty good. And rightfully so, because it's not like they're getting away. Jesus says, take heart at his eye, do not be afraid. Now you go ahead, you knock Peter all you want, but, but the dude, the dude had some moments. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. That's like out of the park, right? All right, if you're really Jesus, command me to walk on the water. And Jesus, right, in his infinite grace, didn't just be like, dude, shut up. No, what's wrong with you? But he's like, okay, come. Come, I want to teach you something. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. So you knock Peter all you want. He's the only other dude not named Jesus who's walked on water, okay? And, And so he's walking on the water. But see, here it is. Eyes on Jesus, walking on water. Eyes off Jesus. Things fall apart, right? Sink. But when he saw the wind, I'm not sure how you see the wind in the dark, but he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Eyes on Jesus, the absence of fear. Eyes off Jesus, the opposition looks immense and huge and overwhelming, and we're disheartened and we're fearful and afraid. How do we respond to opposition? Well, we respond like Nehemiah did. We, we get before God, we begin to act, we protect the vulnerable, and we get our eyes fixed on Jesus. Got to get our eyes on Jesus. Right? The threat can destroy, it can paralyze, it can distract, or, or it can push us to the place where we put our eyes back on Jesus, where we have a resolve to work, we have a mind to work, we have an inner will to work. Because there's no fear. Because our eyes are firmly fixed on the God of the universe. Got to get our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray, God, we pray that we would we'd get our eyes fixed on you, that we would be uh, unrelenting in, in, in coming back to you and seeing you. God, not, not looking at the opposition and then attempting to see you through that, but God, where we would look at you and see the opposition, see the difficulty, see the trial, see the hardship in front of us through that lens, where our eyes would be fixed on Jesus. God, in that, where the absence of fear, the fullness of confidence, ironically enough, also the fullness of peace and joy are found there. God, as opposition undoubtedly comes in our own lives individually and comes in the life of this church collectively, I pray that we would respond the way that Nehemiah responded and the way the Jews responded. God, that we would be quick to pray and seek your heart. God, that we would continue to do what you call us to do. God, that our mind would be to work God, that we would protect those who need uh, the greatest amount of protection. And God, in all of that, where our eyes would be fixed upon you. Jesus, help us. Jesus, help us to get our eyes firmly fixed upon you. We love you and praise you. And God, pray this all in your name. Amen.